Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Bishop Harry Jackson talks about his own journey in living out Jesus' teaching on justice and care for all, as well as the game-changing impact and courage of Martin Luther King Jr. Bishop Jackson, you actually went to Harvard for some time and then yes. ended up as a pastor and a church leader. That's not a usual change. How did you end up from Harvard and going into church leadership? Well, my father um, really paid a big price to get us out of the little ghetto environment I was raised in. He had a high premium on education. So I went to a college preparatory high school, then on to what they call a little Ivy school here in the States, probably the number one liberal arts college in the United States. And then on to Harvard, simply because he had passed at this time, but that was his dream, that I would go to Harvard University. I did MBA there. And um, when I went, though, I was in this place of ambivalence between whether I should preach the gospel or try to become a multi-multi-millionaire. And uh, the Lord ultimately won. I was thinking that I wanted to go to work for Goldman Sachs and do things of that nature. And uh, so the bottom line is that the Harvard MBA got me to a little town called Corning, New York, working as a sales and marketing manager and ultimately as a national sales manager. And uh, there the Lord had me plant a church and we eventually transitioned to full-time preaching the gospel after some years of bivocational work. What was, the, what was the church like? Well, the church was a multiracial church. We had only about one through 2% blacks in the entire church. It had very wealthy people and very uneducated people. It was more or less what I envisioned the early church to be like, bond and free and different nationalities, if you will. And I learned about the kingdom of God, and I learned about the fact that there was one race of people uh, that God was concerned about, the human race, and that we have too much emphasis, the average everyday Joe, on tribalism, on our background, the pride of the flesh, and it was a tremendous lesson for me to learn. What was it? It was, must have been a bit unusual as a church at that time to, that you as an African-American were leading a church that was mostly you know, white or mixed in its race. What was yeah, that like? Yeah, it was mostly white. It was, I was one of the first um, African-Americans, first blacks to pastor a majority white church. And uh, it was odd. I'd been in the academic world with whites, uh, but I had never been in the church world with a lot of whites. And so I learned, we grew, there's a black subculture from music to the way church life goes in America. But the Lord began to give me an understanding of international missions, etc. So I learned how to love the least of these cross-culturally. And I began to discern that I had operated under an issue of racial prejudice, hurt. I had a class-oriented prejudice in my life, meaning that I didn't have any problem with whites and the intellectual whites at a Harvard University or at my prep school that I grew up in, uh, the guys who were leading in Cincinnati, Ohio, Procter & Gamble, all these big companies. 
I didn't have problems with them, but it was the poor whites in America who epitomized uh, who the membership of the KKK and other groups of that nature, the alt-right of that generation. As I looked at those kinds of people, I had issues. I, I wondered whether they rejected or accepted people like me. And um, the Lord had to come and deal with me uh, early on in our, our church life. Um, we encountered awful lot of folk in that community, which was in the upper reaches of Appalachia in America, the poorest of the poor. And in dealing with poor whites, um, something began to rise. And at a communion service, I recognized that it was racism. It was a class-oriented kind of offense. The Bible says that we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. In other words, one of the proofs that we are born again is that we discern and see the kingdom because of the changed heart within us. But also there's a transformation, a heart transformation, a heart revolution that goes on. And I was stuck somewhere. And uh, the Lord helped me to repent of that and to get that right. And it is communion service in a deep southern city that I was in. When I went back to the small little group that we had and I faced my racism, I faced my issues, uh, all of a sudden that little church began to blossom, it began to grow. And all of a sudden, when I couldn't communicate verbally, was communicated by the Spirit. Wow. And the Lord helped me understand the heart of compassion, how to see people, how to receive them. And the reciprocal happens when people know that, yeah. that you love them. It's easy for them to respond, even though you don't look like them or sound like them. And our church, I was talking to my daughter about this just a couple of days ago. There was a supernatural grace, a sense of love and acceptance that permeated that little church in that out of the way part of America. And people that came there were, our church is called Hope Christian Church. They were broken, they were wounded, maybe not financially broken, but emotionally broken, spiritually broken. People who had been abused, misused, people who had demonic manifestations in their lives, health challenges off the charts. So the Lord taught me how to love him more by seeing his face in the face of those he assigned me to. It's intriguing, isn't it? Because a lot of church leaders and people in church leadership, there's a bit like if I had a better group of people, yeah. <laughs> we'd do great. Yes. What you discovered was that something had to happen in you and that changed the church. It really did. And, and so we touched the least of these. But I was talking to a dear friend of mine the other day about the fact that since I've been in Washington, there have been many seasons of time where we would have 25, 30 medical doctors attending this church. Some of them were immigrant medical doctors like Nigerian born, others were American born, etc. There are always these amazingly high level, very intellectual people attending wherever I pastor. But among us, there is always the least, the last and the lost. And I believe that that's the heart of Jesus. Mm. And when that heart is manifest, mm. 
if you'll reach out to people, God can begin to release that supernatural acceptance. We're living in a generation in the States, I believe around the world, where we have people who are fatherless, who have also never been fathered. And rejection and a sense of being orphaned is really at the root of where so many of us live. And so I feel like in this season of my life, I want to be, my great aspiration is to be a Barnabas-like figure who was a guy that went and found the Apostle Paul that nobody understood, trained him up to be a leader at Antioch, then took him out on the first missionary journey. Barnabas, the leader, put Paul up, had him preach, nurtured him, and then he let the eagle take off. And the fruit of affirmation, the fruit of fathering, is really what the church in this generation needs. So God helped me see people differently. He helped me embrace my need for his love and grace. And um, that is, was really a major turning point in my life. You just you mentioned before about the heart of Jesus. Yes. And, and we're thinking about the issue of, of, of justice. And, and care, as you say, for the least of these. Yes. But what did Jesus have to say about justice that impact your life? Well, he had a lot to say about justice. I think the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, is the Christian Magna Carta mm-hmm. and a charter of liberation. And I believe that there's a special grace that comes to people that make peace, who create justice, We are to let our lights shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Righteousness and justice, the Bible teaches. Many, many different uh, passages. I love Psalm 89, verse 14. It says that righteousness and justice is the foundation of God's throne. In other words, Jesus comes as we're sitting here and he can find a seat, a throne, a place of expression if we'll let righteousness, right standing and personal holiness and justice, a desire to do good, desire to do the best, desire for equality and fairness, exude from our lives, our laws, our policies, our culture, to help people who are disadvantaged, the widow, the poor, the orphaned in our culture. Righteousness and justice will allow Jesus to sit down in a church, sit down in a community and begin to rule and reign as the great Lord and the great King that he is. That's what we should be after if we want awakening and revival in our land. In the early church, what did you see in the early church where, where racial issues seemed to be bypassed by the work of the church following Jesus and the work of the Spirit? Well, if you look at Acts chapter 6, it's a beginning point. And then you look at the writings of Paul talking about there's neither Jew or Gentile or excuse me, Jew or Greek, and there is neither bond nor free. Bond would be a bond servant or someone who's free, perhaps a Roman citizen with all what we would call privilege uh, in this generation in America. And in the kingdom, our stature and status does not exist exceed our brotherhood and our commitment and covenant one to another. In other words, the sociological divisions that people take pride in, they're supposed to melt 
and we're supposed to prioritize uh, kingdom relations. So Paul is a prisoner. He raises up churches in the very heart of the Roman governmental system and that in the churches that he was raising up, slaves taught free men. People who are not citizens taught the privileged citizens of Rome. And it was totally backward. And the early church had this uh, ability to supersede and the cultural mores of the day. And that's why our faith was so contagious and it took over the world because it was a countercultural revolutionary movement of good. Obviously one of the heroes of the African-American church and uh, blacks in America is Martin Luther King. What do, you, what do you understand about his motivation for what he did? Well, I know his motivation was to glorify God. There is a story that King tells, I heard it on audio, about after he got his death threat that said, I'm going to kill you. We're going to blow you up. He had had 30 death threats, one a day, more or less, over 30 days. And he knew that something major was going to come. Here's his raspy voice saying, we're going to get you the N-word. And uh, he gets concerned about his wife, his family. He goes down to his kitchen table, sits there with a cup of coffee, and he says, Lord, I know my father knew you. I knew my grandfather knew you. He began to think about all the people that really knew God. And he says, Lord, I got to really know you for myself. This is a doctoral student yet to finish his dissertation who is pastoring a church, but saying, God, if you're out there, I need to know you're real kind of a thing. His testimony is this that he had heard a voice say to him, and I have heard him, heard him preach it on tape. He said, stand up for righteousness and justice, and I will be with you till the end. And suddenly the fear began to subside. And so I believe that King, who was not perfect and had a lot of issues in his life as I have come to find and out and know a lot about him through his family members and uh, those who remain. Uh, but he did, in fact, have this hunger to make a difference for God. He had a prophetic message and he lived under prophetic uh, grace and he was protected by God until his time was up. And you've probably heard the story about someone stabbing him in the heart and that he carried a, a scar, the sign of a cross on his chest. Most of the strike point, the convergence phase of his life. And so every time he'd look in the mirror, he would see that cross over his heart. And um, I love to say that we're immortal until our assignment is finished. And I think King epitomized what it means to be a, a man of faith. But I think America missed it at that time, if you don't mind me elaborating on this. Mm. I believe that the civil rights movement was just the justice beginning of what God wanted to turn into a full-blown revival and awakening in all of America. Mm. 
But in the South, white evangelicals, they, when schools were trying to be integrated, whatever, they actually started Christian schools. They took their kids out of the regular schools. They avoided this whole thing of the justice work that God was doing. The letter uh, that King wrote from the Birmingham jail was back to clergy who said, now is not the time for justice. Now is not the time to deal with this. Instead of saying, America had 400 years of slavery, racism, Jim Crow, lynching, tortures, all kind of oppressive behavior, and that it was time for the church to rise up and be kingdom people. I believe that we missed it. Not just the white-led church. Someone asked me the other day, they said, well, do you think that it's the sin of the white church in America that has really kept us from experiencing civil rights and justice the way we should? I said, no, it's the sin of the whole church. Mm. Because the black church has been bitter. The black church has been insular. The black church has held grudges. And the white church has had the sin of apathy. But if we together decided that we're going to come out of our apathetic lifestyle, embrace justice, today the greatest justice operation or opportunity is returning citizens, getting a chance to recapture their lives, leading people to Christ, discipling their families, helping these men and women get jobs, get opportunities, we could close some of the income gaps in urban America. We could close uh, the fact that there's generational, um, what would you call it, underclass that's being created in minority communities. But the church is yet asleep. But if we'll wake up, we can change things on our watch. So I believe King's justice movement, it was a spiritual movement, was supposed to morph into a full-blown awakening. Because remember, slavery ended because the first great awakening, second great awakening, at the heart of it, the church in America believed the abolition of slavery was fundamental. And it was the righteous indignation of white northerners who did not have a dog in the fight that created the Civil War, created the opportunity for blacks to go free. It was whites in places like Maine that decided that they were going to march a tenth of their adult males into a battle that they had nothing but justice on their mind for others. And from Maine, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, we also find that there was a general who at the end of the Civil War decided that blacks needed to have education. They needed to have opportunity to really enter into life. It was a white general from Maine who went before Congress, pressed for the first institution that would train these newly freed former slaves. And because he was so passionate, they decided to name the university after him. So Howard University in DC was founded because of the passion and zeal of General Howard, who was influenced by Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And they had a dream that justice would come to this land and that people who didn't look like them, 
we get a chance for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm. So Martin Luther King was not the only person with a dream? No, no, he wasn't. He was an amazing prophetic voice and articulator of what I declare it was, is God's dream. And so King's dream was God's dream, really. And he did a great job. I love the fact that we hear it, snippets of it in many different places. But it was God's dream from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And in the very Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, a counterfeit to God's dream was about to be manifest when people without God were going to build a tower and make their name great in a city. And the tower was in a cult tower, their unity, a false unity that stood against the revelation of God. God said, if I let them go on, they will be able to do what they do. So he confounded their language created a rift and a division in all of humankind. But the day the church was born, the sign that God would bless unity only in Christ happened that on the day of Pentecost, the division of languages, which God created was reversed. Mm -hmm. And suddenly people could speak languages they'd never learned. And the separation of language, tribalism and culture was brought back together. And in Jesus Christ, that's the only hope that there will be unity of purpose in all of mankind. For you, knowing all of that history and yes. knowing that so much of those who called themselves followers of Jesus stood against the equality of your people. Yes. And how do you not be bitter? Well, I think you, you have to really embrace what I'm gonna call kingdom protocol. First, you gotta be born again. Second, we advance through revelation, work and the word moving in our lives. And I believe that King's example was amazing. After his house um, was blown up, standing in front of his house, people gathered uh, 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, and all kinds of former uh, soldiers, et cetera, military people gathered with weapons in their hands. And he said, no, we're not going to fight like the world. Today, we're going to forgive. Today, we're going to turn the other cheek. That whole nonviolent movement came into play. And I believe God will grace us. And the Bible says clearly that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In doing that now in your church and in this community and across the nation, how, how do you see yourself as a church leader in the church doing that? Well, for me, this church is an interesting place. When I first came here, I had a bunch of African people, small group of folk, first generation African immigrants. And some of the African Americans were saying, ah, those guys, they like to stay together. They don't really trust us. And I thought to myself, if they don't want to be with us, they don't trust us. Why are they even in this church? So the Lord led me 
I had been in an all-white church with a handful of blacks dealing with my own racist issues in upstate New York. So I'm one black person, a small group of blacks, 90-some percent whites. I come to D.C. to a church that's 70% black, 30% white, and among the so-called blacks, I've got all these first-generation Africans. And the Lord began to talk to me that this tribalism, this racism that was existent up here is existent down here. And that racism, as I had begun to think about it, was not just a black-white thing. One tribe can have this feeling about another tribe. One nation is another nation. So today we have scores of different nationalities in this church. I don't know that we have uh, 25 or 30 different nationalities that worship here. We have people from South America, Central America, various parts of Africa here. We obviously have the garden variety whites and black Americans as well. And I believe that our job first is to live the truth and then the criminal justice reform is one of the specific ways that we're tearing down some barriers, especially reentry kinds of programs and um, where people are getting an opportunity for a second chance. Do you have hope? I have a lot of hope. Here's what I believe is happening. I believe in, in America today and many parts of the world, there's a civil awakening happening, meaning people that don't know the Lord want justice. The Me Too movement in America is a justice movement. The movement that's taking all these pictures about police brutality against blacks and Hispanics and others is a justice movement. The concern about what's going on with the poor versus the rich in some cities, I believe is a justice movement. But without the defining characteristics and moral equity that comes from the scriptures, you can't create justice, true justice, on your own terms. Justice is, is not something that we just create. There's got to be a godly standard. So Joel says this, God's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. I believe God's pouring out his spirit upon unchurched flesh to bring this hunger for justice. But there's a prophetic grace being poured out in the church to define and lead so that we can enter into that justice. I believe we're going to experience a moral awakening in America. I believe we're going to see new kinds of churches rise up. And I'm so glad that God's allowed me to stay alive to see this day. This series is called Jesus the Game Changer. So Bishop Jackson, how do you see Jesus as a game changer for you? Yes. I think Jesus is a game changer based on the Beatitudes, meaning the things he told us when he says, happy is he. And that's when the, he says, blessed are you when these things happen. So the first Beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the idea there, that word for poverty, two Greek words for poverty, one is the working poor, the other is the abject poor who have nothing else. If they don't get some kind of handout, some food today, they die. Many people 
have a general sense that they need God. But there is a class of people, a group of people who cultivate this hunger and it's based, I believe, on revelation and humility that, and I have this many days, I'm, I'm really experiencing this even as we teach and preach today. If somehow God doesn't speak to me, I have nothing worth saying. If somehow God doesn't move in our ministry, I have nothing worth doing. I've lived a long time. I've been to some of the greatest schools in the world, but I have nothing of value to offer unless he first gives it to me. And I believe that that hunger is what opens the door to all the other kingdom graces, anointings, authority, and power. So the game changer that Jesus gives us and becomes to us is after we're born again, if we pursue him, follow hard after him, we who are poor in spirit can do exploits. Daniel said it this way, the people that know their God will be strong and do exploits. Jesus is the ultimate game changer. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.